0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Dan, and I have the immense privilege of opening the Word of God with you this morning as we continue in our summer series out of the book of Isaiah. So, if you would like to find your copy of the Word of God and open up to Isaiah chapter 6, we'll be reading that together shortly. We are going currently through a series this summer through chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah. And last week, Pastor Marty introduced the theme of these first 12 chapters of Isaiah, and that theme is this Will you, will I, will Judah be a citizen of Babylon or Jerusalem? Who will be our king? And in Isaiah chapter 6 today, that question is continued to be asked Which king will we serve? And in this story that we will be looking at, we will see through the illustration of Isaiah's interaction with God just what it looks like to serve God as your king. So let's read Isaiah 6 together as we start our time. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. Say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and, for, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so, Father, we come before you now, even as we open your word to a somewhat familiar text. I pray, Lord, that by your goodness and by your graciousness, our hearts will be opened and surrendered to these truths that we will read. And in turn, Lord, may our lives reflect your holy reign the holy forgiveness we receive, and the purpose that you give us. And so we pray these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Isaiah 6, we see that the king is dead. It's the first sentence. Uzziah has died. He was the king who reigned for 52 years, and he reigned in such a way that the nation of Judah experienced profound prosperity and increase and general peace. And Uzziah had been a good king for the most part. Second Chronicles uh, chapter 26 tells us that. If you want to look at that and see just what kind of king Uzziah was, he was a good king because we are told that he had set himself to seek God. And that under the reign of Uzziah, all things prospered so long as he continued to seek the Lord. But not all that starts well ends well. And there's great danger in prosperity, isn't there? And this is what we see in the story of Uzziah. Because prosperity caused him to per- pursue himself. To seek God. Himself, I think oftentimes when things go well for us, we look at life and realize just how gifted we are. How, great, how, how good it is for the world to benefit from our presence. We rejoice in our own godness in some ways. And I think for Uzziah, that's what happened. He grew strong and he prospered and he grew proud. And his downfall came... When he entered the temple and attempted to burn incense. Now, that was his destruction. And as a result of that act, he was covered with leprosy. And he spent the remainder of his days not on the throne, but in seclusion. The king is dead. And when a king dies, there's transition. And when a king of 52 years dies, there is fear. And when a good king of 52 years dies, there is worry about who will reign. And that is what is occurring here in Isaiah chapter 6 as we look. It's a severely troubling time in Judah. And it's a severely troubling time for the prophet Isaiah as he pleads with the, with the nation of Judah to see that just as Uzziah was proud and he forgot the Lord... That they too, in the midst of their own prosperity, have become proud and are in danger of forgetting the way of the Lord. And it's with that background in mind that we enter into the text. And in our time today, as we look through the thirteen verses of chapter six, we're going to divide it up into three chunks, three scenes that are given to us in this chapter, and each scene will reveal a bit on what it means to follow God as your king. So let's look at scene 1, verses 1 through 4. Scene 1 is found in the throne room of God. We see here that Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And what Isaiah witnesses here is the permanence of God's reign. Now the phrase, the contrasting phrase that starts off chapter 6 is really important to notice. He states the death of Uzziah and he states the position of God. Side by side. I saw the Lord. Isaiah is emphasizing that the temporary king has died, but the permanent king still reigns. There still is a king on the throne. And he also wants to warn that there's great danger for the child of God to become fixated or transfixed on temporary leaders. We tend to do that, don't we? We tend to look to the man or woman in front of us who says the right things and makes right decisions and allows us to experience success and we tend to place our, our hopes in them. But leaders fail us all the time. And leaders are temporary. But this beginning of Isaiah 6 is meant to lay the foundation that while leaders on this earth are temporary, the king reigns forever. And in fact in Psalm 145 verse 13, an earthly king, David, writes about the king and he says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And this is what Isaiah and you and I, by connection, are meant to see as he enters in to the throne room of God and he sees God seated on his throne The very fact that God is seated is an important detail for that signifies that God hasn't moved. The throne isn't vacant. God is not frantically attempting to deal with the fact that Uzziah has died. He is positioned and will be positioned for all eternity. And the position of his throne, by the way, is high and lifted up, signifying the fact that there is none other than this God, than this king. He is above all others, and so Even though the earthly king has died and we might fear as the earthly king has left the throne, the king is permanent and his throne will never be vacated and he is the holy king. And this is what Isaiah moves in to realize. If you look in in your text here, you see that he begins to try to describe the, the king that he sees. But he isn't really describing the Lord so much as he's describing the presence around the Lord. And we know why that is because in Exodus thirty-three, twenty, 20 Moses says that no one can look upon the holy God and live and so Isaiah tries to relay to us a picture of this holy God as best as he can and look what he starts with. He begins by identifying and describing the train of the holy God, the robe of the holy God and the expanse of this robe. The robe fills the temple. There is no place where this robe does not fill The royal train is a symbol of one's glory, and it has been and even is currently. We still see it even today in modern times. Queen Elizabeth, at her coronation in 1953, wore a robe that was much talked about. It took two years to make, and it had a train that was 14 feet long. And so as she entered in for the processional, there were people walking behind to carry this train to ensure that its magnificence was seen, to ensure that even as she walked by, her presence remained as the train of her robe was moving past. Now, the train that is mentioned here in Isaiah chapter 6 is no mere 14 feet long. The train of God flows over his throne, filling the room So there is no more space. You think about this and put your place in this vision and see this. The king is on his throne and his grandeur, his royalty fills all available space. There simply is no space for anyone else. And then Isaiah looks up and he sees the seraphim. He becomes aware of these creatures surrounding the throne of God. Now seraph literally means burning ones. And so Isaiah sees these fiery creatures surrounding God and notes really, for our benefit, their activity. Because it's in their posture and in their activity that we see the proper way to approach a holy God. Notice that the six wings that they have, each pair is used for something. The first pair of wings is used to cover their eyes because you can't gaze brazenly upon a holy God. The second pair is used to cover their feet, signifying humility. We have no room for pride in the presence of a holy God. The third pair of wings is used to move about and to fly about covering his throne in activity, signifying that God has created them with a purpose And we're given what that purpose is in the very next phrase, verse three. The activity of the seraphim, they called to one another and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now there's only two times in scripture where this is mentioned as such. The holiness of God is mentioned three times. Here in Isaiah chapter six, And in Revelation chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 4, it's another creature with six wings. Could be a seraphim. It's not identified as such. But this creature and these creatures are once again surrounding the throne of God, pronouncing the holiness of God times three. And so here in Isaiah and there in Revelation, we see that the activity of these seraphim is to continuously call out the holiness of God without end. That's how holy our God is. There is an eternal worship occurring before him without end. And I guarantee you, these seraphim never get bored of that act. And I want you to notice a detail that perhaps you may have missed as I missed, even as I read it this week. Verse 4. In verse 4, we see that as they call out the holiness of God, the foundations of the thresholds shake. To proclaim the holiness of God as His creation, all the heavens notice. And so when we, as God's creation, proclaim the holiness of God, we oftentimes use that word, not not recognizing the significance of that word. That in the word holy, you are completely describing and ascribing the value of God. When you call God holy, the heavens shake. Because when his holiness is espoused, the heavens praise his holiness. The earth rejoices at the pronouncement of his holiness. We cannot fully understand or define the holiness of God, but we can most certainly proclaim his holiness. And so here in Isaiah chapter 6, in the beginning scene, we see a man who is ushered into the throne room of a holy God, and he tries his very best to understand what is occurring in front of him. And then we enter into scene Two, And brothers and sisters, whenever you fully grasp or come into the presence of the holy God, everything changes for you. And if nothing changes for you, then you haven't been in the presence of the holy God. For if you look at the next scene, beginning in verse 5 and ending in verse 7, we see Isaiah on his face as he expresses his personal woe. There really is no other response in the presence of a holy God Other than personal woe. But for Isaiah, this is an important mark. Because if you look back at Isaiah 5 and you just do a quick perusal of chapter 5, you'll notice that he uses the word woe six times in chapter 5 with regards to other people, the nations who are seeking and pursuing wickedness. But here in Isaiah 6, when he is exposed to the holiness of God, look at what his response is Woe is me, for I am lost. This is not signifying that Isaiah has lost his way and is wandering about. Some of your translations have the phrase done, the word done in there. I am done or I am undone. The Hebrew actually means that I am about to be annihilated. I will cease to be. And why is it that he is saying this phrase regarding himself? This is a confession of contrast brothers and sisters. This is not a confession in comparison to other people. This is a confession of contrast. Isaiah is recognizing in the presence of a holy God, he is unholy. And that's what true confession before God looks like. Many of us actually enter into a, con- a confession of comparison though where we cease to confess because we're not quite as bad as somebody else. But in the presence of the holy God and the Presence of the godness of God, you cease pract- You cease the practice of defining your holiness by the unholiness of others. Instead, your whole your unholiness is defined by the holy God before you. And what's interesting here is Isaiah specifies the point of his uncleanliness is his lips. Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. You think about the, the sequence of this story. Isaiah had just come through a moment where he witnessed seraphim praising God with their lips. And Isaiah was unable to join the seraphim as they praised because his lips were, clean, were unclean, were sinful. But it's not just his lips that are unclean. The lips simply represent the whole person. And it's a common theme throughout scripture. That what is coming out of your mouth represents what is being created in your heart, where your affections lie. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus Christ says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your lips reveal the condition of your heart. The things you say, the ideas you espouse, reveal the condition of your heart. I wonder, what condition your lips reveal your heart to be in? And Isaiah goes on to emphasize the woeful state that he finds himself in. He recognizes also that it's not just him that is in a woeful state, but he says, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. No longer does Isaiah just simply stand apart from those around him and cast judgment on them. He recognizes that all humanity is is in this sinful state. That sin resides deep within all humanity. That the issue of humanity isn't just that they make bad decisions, but that they are sinful through and through. It's reflective in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, a passage maybe you have memorized, which reads, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory or the holiness of God. All of us. We are all lost in our sin. We are all horrific sinners. We are all opposed to the holiness of God. And Isaiah had seen the holy God. He had witnessed the majesty, the glory, the purity, all those things that mark the holiness of God. And out of that experience, for the very first time of his life, Isaiah understood who God is. And at the same moment that he understood who God was, Isaiah understood who he was. My brothers and my sisters, I pray for us today that as we look at this picture of the holy God and understand his magnificence and understand his purity and understand the fact that we are not, I pray that we would express a confession similar to Isaiah's. And Isaiah confesses his Lostness, his woe ness. My eyes have seen the King of Kings, the Lord of Hosts. The very next thing that occurs, if we can put ourselves in this situation, we have to think Isaiah expects the wrath of God. Why would he expect that? Well, because holiness consumes sinfulness, the two cannot be in the same space. We see this throughout, the, throughout Scripture, that wherever there was explicit sinfulness and God was present, his holiness would consume that sinfulness. Sodom and Gomorrah, Israel, there was a story in Numbers where God's wrath was poured out upon the sinfulness of Israel and consumed the camp. But here, what happens next is astounding. Verse six, one of the seraphim flew to me Having in his hand a burning coal taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Rather than the consuming wrath of God, Isaiah experienced the consuming forgiveness of the holy God. If we put ourselves in Isaiah's place, we fully would expect with an angel coming at you with a burning coal in his hands or in the tongs, we would fully expect at that point in time that our very next memory would be nothing. But this fire, this fire was taken from the altar of the holy God. This fire was taken from the altar of the place where the holiness of God accepted and was satisfied by the death of a substitutionary atonement. A sacrifice had occurred and from that altar this coal was taken and this coal was coming from a place where God's holy wrath had been satisfied. And note that this wrath or this act by God was his initiative, not Isaiah's. Isaiah hadn't cleaned himself up at some point here. He hadn't put on his best suit. He hasn't presented himself properly. He simply confessed his unholiness in the presence of God's holiness. I am not holy. You are holy. King of kings, Lord of lords. God's holy forgiveness is always his initiative. He does not wait for us to clean ourselves up It is a confession of his holiness and our sinfulness that brings about the grace of God. We see in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, this theme where Paul writes, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As you receive the forgiveness of the holy God, as you are pronounced clean by God, there's a transfer that occurs. You see, Isaiah is brought into this terrifying scenario, this terrifying place in the presence of the holy God to recognize his sinfulness, not so that he is destroyed, but so that he is refined. To become the forgiven child of God that is now used by the holy God for the mission of God. And this is what happens here. This is the sequence. When you are exposed to the holiness of God and you surrender to his holiness and you confess your total sinf- sinfulness, you will receive the grace and mercy of the holy God. Which leads us to scene three Isaiah is now a man on God's mission, verses 8 through 13. Isaiah here is commissioned by God. And in verse 8, we read, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the first time God speaks in chapter 6. He wasn't heard previous because Isaiah wasn't ready or able to hear the voice of God in his sinful state. But now, because of the work of God on his behalf, he has been pronounced clean, and therefore he is able to hear the holiness of God, to hear God speak. And you notice that when God approaches this redeemed man, this forgiven man, he does so with a commission, a purpose to be given to him. Brothers and sisters, when you are transformed by the work of God in our hearts, this is the very next reality for us. The defining purpose for your days is transformed as well. We now live to make much of the God who has redeemed and transformed us. And so Isaiah hears God and his response is, here am I, send me. I like to think that Isaiah couldn't put his hand up quick enough at this point in time. Because when you have witnessed God's holiness and expected his wrath and instead received his gracious forgiveness, there is no other way to live your life than for his glory, proclaiming his glory all the days that he grants you. And his words, here am I, are powerful. Because notice, he doesn't put any sort of clauses attached to this. God, here I am, except for Tuesday. A little busy on Tuesday. So if we can work around that, God, we're good. No, this is here I am without limitations, without conditions. Whatever you desire of me, God, I'm yours to use. I wonder if that is my prayer and your prayer in response to God's forgiveness. Here I am, God, whatever you desire to use me for, please, I'm surrendering to your will. Or do you find yourself saying, God, mm, not that far mm, and not just yet. That's just too much to ask of me, God. If we find ourselves placing limits on the extent that we are willing to go in the service of this holy God, then I fear that we may not have really experienced the holy God. Look at verses 9 through 10, because this is an important clarification on what Isaiah's mission actually is. Isaiah is given the message that he is to proclaim, and it's not a fun one. The message is this: Go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The brutal reality of the message that God is giving Isaiah to give is that both the message and the messenger will be rejected, they will not be accepted. It's not a message of encouragement and affirmation. Isaiah is to give to the people that God is sending him the message that he just went through in the beginning phases of Isaiah 6. And what is that message? There's a holy God, and you are sinful, and you must repent, and out of his graciousness, he will forgive you, and you need his forgiveness. And you need the newness of life that he will give you and he will be your God, and you will be his people. And that message will cause people to reject you. And that message will actually harden hearts as men and women dig their heels in. I don't need God. I'm on my own. I can forgive myself. It is hard and tiresome work. And it leads Isaiah to verse 11 when he says, How long, O Lord? It's a reflection of the difficulty of the task in front of him and frankly in the task in front of us as servants of the living God. Maybe you've said that as you've attempted to share the gospel with people around you. Maybe your prayer is, Oh God, how long will my heart be broken for the sins of my friends and my family? How long, O Lord, will my family members continue in their life seeking pleasure but only experiencing emptiness? How long, O Lord, will I tell people the gospel and be rejected and mocked and thought less of? How long, O Lord? And God's answer to Isaiah isn't to change the message or to stop. I know you tried, it's hard. God's message is to continue. Because our life as transformed people is to be lived according to God's timetable, not ours. There's no end to the deliverance of God's message while we are on this earth. And while it is a difficult plea that we utter to our loved ones and we feel their rejection and it's painful to see someone discard the most precious message they could ever e- hear, This is not just simply a one-and-done event for us. We are a transformed and a called people, and so therefore, because of the refining fire of God's forgiveness, we now have the perpetual pleasure of being servants of the living God all the days that he grants us. And so throughout this chapter, chapter 6, Isaiah is reflecting through his personal interaction with the holy God what it means for God To truly be king. And through Isaiah, we really see three things on what it means for God to be king to you. The first is this when you are exposed and surrendered to his holy reign, his holiness consumes you. You can't help but marvel at his holiness. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you marvel at the holiness of God? Second thing we see is that God's consuming holiness leads to a confession of our unholiness. When God is your king, the depth of your unholiness and faithlessness is seen for what it really is, an offense against the reign and the rule of a holy God. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we mourn the effects of our sin more than the offense of our sin against God. And when God is your king... The forgiveness we receive from the Holy God causes us to surrender ourselves to his purposes all the days of our life. When God is your king, your days are not measured in minutes, hours, or years, or the next event that you're looking forward to. Your days are measured in opportunities to be faithful for his glory and for his message. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if that is how we view the purpose of our life. When God is your king, his holiness reigns, his forgiveness is real, and your life is guided by his reign. I wonder, does that describe you? Know this, brothers and sisters, this is an invitation. That if he is not your king, he can be your king. Because exposure to his holiness and forgiveness by the grace of God will result in a life transformed by God for his glory all the days that he gives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time in your word. I thank you for allowing us to see just a picture of your holiness And to experience the ramifications in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I pray, Lord, that as we are in this room this morning, that your spirit would work, convict, and heal. Lord, I pray that you would use us as your children all the days that you give us. Use us, Lord, to be mouthpieces for your glory, proclaiming your message all the days that are before us. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.